Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's the founder of the Stillness Project, speaker, coach, teacher, author, and producer. It's Tom Cronin. How are you doing today, Tom? Very well, thanks. Great to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Gosh, I'm from Sydney, Australia. I'm currently in Sydney, Australia. I grew up on a small country farm uh, about two hours outside of Sydney and uh, had a very nourishing, sort of healthy, wholesome childhood on this sort of very remote sort of country farm. And uh, yeah, it was just a a really nice way to grow up with uh, catching tadpoles and riding bikes through, you know, dusty paddocks and, you know, park little sort of um, sort of laneways through forests. So it was um, a really wholesome way to, to grow up. And yeah, I guess um, that was kind of the start of my journey into this world. Do you feel living in the country farm area, you just enjoyed nature and being an outdoors kind of person? Yeah, very much so. I always felt very connected to outdoors, to nature, um, particularly living in Australia where we're surrounded by so much of it. It sounds a bit like Missouri, but, um, you know, for me, where we grew up was very much, you know, in, in the, um, we call it the bush in Australia, you probably call it forests, but yeah, it's very much connecting with nature a lot of the time. Is there an activity that is kind of a big memory for you? You kind of mentioned a few different ones, but is there one that kind of stands out that it's like you remember every single time someone mentions that? Well, a big part of my childhood, you know, I had uh, two brothers and, you know, we kind of had an ex-neighbor that was a, a young kid as well. And, you know, we used to get our old uh, secondhand bikes and we we're always tinkering with them and you know, we loved sort of tinkering with our bikes in the sheds and then we'd go for long rides, you know, really exploring very distant sort of remote sort of little country towns and as far as we could get. Uh, and that was a big part of our weekend was just getting on our bikes and riding and riding and riding. Of course, this was before we had helicopter parents and hover parents <laughs> that, you know, were constantly watching us. You know, we had no helmets and mum and dad never knew where we were. We were gone for hours and hours and off into sort of very distant areas and so that was for me um a big part of my childhood i think do you feel if your parents were helicopter parents it wouldn't be as fun because it sounds like you could just go wherever you want and just explore and have fun and i think parents today still do the same thing but they're a little bit more cautious letting their kids just roam i think we're really depriving children of a number of levels of growth you know where we're um firstly we aren't allowing children to get dirty and, you know, uh, we, we've become very hygienic, which is compromising our immune systems. You know, we have very robust human immune systems because we were constantly, you know, just putting hands in mud and getting dirty. Um, and these days I think we're, we're missing a part of our own immune system development. I think also as an individual to have that level of empowerment, sovereignty and individual strength and courage, you know, we've got anxiety and ADHD and, um, phobia is just riddled into our children these days. And I think a lot of that is because we're keeping such tight, confined boundaries around children that it's like putting, you know, any animal in a cage. They get very nervous and agitated over time. And so for me as a child, you know, having a lot of that freedom really helped me, I think, as a human being. And I think we're, we, we might look back and study that level of compromise and and containment that we're putting on children to be very detrimental I, I feel over time growing up did you have any inspirations anyone that motivated you to go out and do whatever you wanted to do 
Look, I had a, I grew up, you know, in a Catholic family. I had a very strong sense of connection to, um, to Jesus and God. It's really interesting. I had a very strong faith. I used to pray a lot personally. Um, we prayed in the family, you know, we went to church every week and we did the rosary and we did grace and all those things. But I also had a, a strong sense of communication, I think, with some these days in my spiritual development. I see it as like a higher source or some sort of higher intelligence. But um, back then it was just seen as Jesus and God. But that developed definitely in me at a very young age. And I think that I think that supported me in having a great deal of confidence. When I was 18, I basically left school, um, saved up a lot of money by picking fruit in orchards um, in the local district in the orchards um, during the picking season. And then I went and travelled the world. I travelled across America and I travelled across Europe on my own as 18. Um, you know, uh, there was times when I had very little money and I was sleeping on train stations through the night. And, um, you know, it's all of that just adds a lot of colour and texture and certainly sovereignty and empowerment to someone that's still in their teenage years. I mean, these days... Um, you know, it's very rare to hear teenagers doing that because they're sort of really going straight from school into university and trying to do all mm-hmm. the things to make money and pay off their loans and their debts and, and try and save up to get their houses. And so some of this richness of, you know, I was very inspired by Jack Kerouac, uh, I guess if you're thinking of someone that might have inspired me and I was reading a book called On the Road. Um, it was a cult classic in the sort of 70s in America um, maybe 60s and 70s and it was all about him traveling across America on the railway cars and um, I was reading that book and that really inspired me just to, to get on the road and explore the world. You mentioned that you left at 18. Was there anything leading up to that moment that was kind of making that decision for you or was this something that was always a game plan for you? It was definitely a game plan. It was very much a rite of passage for many Australians back then. And we're going back, what was that, 18? It's going back like 30 years now, <laughs> but um, 35 years. So, you know, that that then was a really big part of our culture. Australia is a very long way away from the rest of the world, and it's not easy to just go and pop over here and pop over there mm-hmm. and see parts of the world easily. So when we went, it was like a big trip, and we usually did that between school and university. We normally had what's called a gap year. Mm-hmm. And it was very much a tradition. My two older sisters took their gap year. Um, and so when it came around to my turn, uh, as a lot of the kids did, we kind of saved up some money. Mum and dad might have chipped in a little bit. And then we had to wing it and work it out ourselves. And so that's when you grab the backpack and you buy a URAL ticket and you travel usually all the way across Europe, seeing as many countries as you can in that one swoop. And then if you can get across to Americas, which is that's what I did. So it was always something that I was sort of planning and destined to do was to take that year off uh, in between school and university. Was your parents supportive of this decision because they wanted you to kind of experience life and experience all over the world and kind of gain that knowledge? Yeah, look, mum and dad were from both big families in, in the UK and they actually left their families to come to Australia and set up camp there. And for them, that was this sort of this sense of freedom from the constraints of the family unit and the overseeing of the, the parents and stuff like that. So as quite young adults, they got married and came to Australia. And I think they were very supportive. And if anything, they were even promoting the idea. I think they really wanted us to sort of have that experience, which is very unusual for these days. It's like parents hold on to their children so tightly, whereas mum mm-hmm. and dad were like, no, we want you to go and explore the world because they could see how much of a role that played in developing us and maturing us. You know, children can be very naive coming straight out of school, going straight into uni. They come out of uni, they're 23, 24, um, and and they can still be 
um, I guess, being treated and, and treating themselves and seeing themselves very much as children. But having backpacked around the world at the age of 18 and having to wing it and work it out myself when I'm low on funds and try and find jobs, you come back uh, very much not completely mature, but certainly um, much more mature than what you would have been if you'd just gone straight into first year university. Looking back at my time, if I was 18, I wish I kind of did like a study abroad, kind of gotten that opportunity to travel and go somewhere. Not like it's not related to what you did, where you kind of were traveling constantly instead of staying in one place. But I wish I gained that opportunity to go do that because I think people that did that, they gained so much more and they kind of are more aware of what's going on, what's different cultures that are around there. Is there a spot that you travel to that was like, wow, this was unexpected in a good way? Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of the world now because since then I've, I did more trips across Asia and places like that. Um, as an 18-year-old, I, I really resonated and connected with Italy. Um, I found that was a wow factor for me. Um, and there's definitely parts of America I really loved and have been back to many times that I, I connected with. But um, since then, you know, I've, I've really connected with a lot of Asia as well. And so I find one of the great things about traveling the world is you have such a deeper sense of awareness and understanding about how just so many different people live very different lives to yours. And we can get very sheltered and myopic about what life is and what life should be. But when you start to see cultures living in such unique and different ways, mm-hmm. it's, it really changes your perspective of, of humanity and, and reality. And you start to have a deeper sense of appreciation, respect and compassion, I think, for all the cultures and all the different ways people are living their lives and, and start to see that maybe yours isn't the best and the only way to live your life. You mentioned one of the challenges you faced was not having the fun, sleeping at train stations and things like that. When you were going through those, did it play a tough part mentally for you that you kind of wanted to stop what you're doing, go back home and just not travel anymore? No, I was very resilient as a child. I have more of that issue as I got older. But, you know, when I had responsibilities like family and children, you know, when I was having to look after other people and I had that sense of obligation and responsibility for other people. When I was 18, I was just so, you know, open-eyed and starry-eyed and very confident and positive and I just kind of like just kind of almost put it down to um you know just part of living you know I don't I don't ever remember feeling scared or overwhelmed or um this is too hard it was just exciting you know it was just like trying to find adaptive ways to deal with that current situation and always having a deep sense of confidence that things would be okay it was interesting that as I got older and as I it's kind of matured I kind of got more I guess insular and I guess insecure about finances and that was just because there was greater obligations and greater responsibilities but as an 18 year old I was just like oh I'll wing it off you know I remember eating this is kind of I don't think I've ever told this to anyone I remember finding some food at a train station in a bag with some leftover donuts and I literally had no money I had couldn't stay anywhere and I slept on the benches um, for a couple of days and uh, I was very hungry and I remember eating some food that I'd found just on the street there. So it's quite interesting to look back at that and think, oh, I was obviously quite resilient back then. You talked about when you got mature, how many years after the traveling did you start having those financial insecurities? It's funny when I started making a lot of money. It's really interesting. You know, I became a broker. I came back from overseas and I was supposed to do a degree of journalism at one of the top universities here. 
and had a few months to fill in before I went to uni, but I had no money because I just spent it all backpacking. So I applied for a bunch of jobs in the paper and um, I was, wasn't going to tell them, but I was going to leave after three months and just make some money and that would allow me to afford to live at university for a while. And uh, so I applied for some jobs, got a really good job on a trading room floor, which I had no idea about, no interest in. But it was the same year Jordan Belfort started his career as Wolf of Wall Street. So next thing I'm on a massive trading room floor as a broker and I'm dealing millions and billions of dollars worth of swaps and bonds. And um, I started getting bonuses and bigger pay rises and more bonuses and more pay rises. My just salary just was exponentially growing and my wealth was exponentially growing. But because of that, you start borrowing more money, you start building more debt, you start having greater responsibilities. And this sort of compounds this sort of sense of um, putting all your attention into this one area of, of wealth creation and, and wealth responsibility. And then that's when things, you know, you start getting those insecurities and that's when it started to happen. As I sort of got into my late 20s, as I started to really scale levels of debt and the levels of trading, the levels of risk that I was taking on. Do you wish that someone growing up taught you the value of a dollar so that maybe you didn't have those issues or those challenges of that financial insecurity as you got older? Look, I think it's very unfortunate that the education um, that we currently subscribe to, you know, we're learning about Shakespeare and Pythagoras theorem and, you know, um, trigonometry and stuff like that. It's, I'm sure there's reason for all of that but what we really need to be learning a lot more about is uh financial responsibility financial strategies investments savings you know i i wasn't taught that um unfortunately from my father and from from this from my parents from school and so you kind of just wing it and I've, you know there's some great books out now there's a great one here in australia which has been a bestseller called barefoot investor which really teaches the most basics of what it means to accumulate wealth, to save wealth, to mm-hmm. have good strategies, just really basic stuff. But it, it became a, a huge phenomenon because people were starved. It was like a huge hungry audience and suddenly be given food that's going to nourish them. They were just devouring it and it became a hugely bestseller because so many people were deprived of that level of knowledge. And I think this is one thing that's really missing in our world still to this day and why we're terrible at money, we're terrible at relationships, we're terrible a lot of the time at parenting because we're just not taught these basics. And these are sort of things that we should be learning more about, I think, at school. I totally agree with that. I think when I was 15, I took a personal finance class in high school and they taught you, okay, how to write a check, what (laughs) your bank stuff. And I'm thinking, it's nice that they're teaching us, but at 15, it doesn't matter to me because I'm still living at home and stuff. It's like college or university, I feel, is the time that they should be teaching that because most people are on their own, spending their own money, and they're eventually going to graduate and be on their own. And that's the time that people should be learning about all the stuff about finances because I've seen my friends go through troubles with financial stuff and they're in debt a lot. They're spending Mm -hmm. so much. They're spending more that they can't afford and they're having a long ride just to try to get out of it. And I think that they should be teaching that, but no, I have to learn. I don't want to learn about Shakespeare. I I don't don't care. Someone that's listening who likes Shakespeare is probably going to hate me saying that, but (laughs) I don't care about Shakespeare as much as what they do, but there's better things that we could be learning. Yeah. You know, my daughter's 19 and uh, she saved uh, just working part-time at a local clothing store. Uh, She saved $60,000 and she's about to buy her first investment property. And I said to her, let's map out, a 10-year strategy here you know 
there's two different ways of looking at wealth. Wealth can be something that we use to spend to get pleasure, or wealth can be something we use to invest to provide safety and security and freedom. And I said, I want you to start thinking about wealth as something you use as a system and a process to provide long-term security and freedom. And so um, what we're looking at is I said, you know, if we can buy your first investment property, that's most likely going to be cash flow positive. So uh, some property that's going to be, you know, your, your mortgage on that property will be covered by the rent on that property. Um, then um, what we want to start looking at is your, your ability to accumulate and let's look at what does it look like for you to accumulate one property every two years. By the time you're 30, you'll have five properties under your belt. Sit on those properties from the time you're 30 to you're 50, they'll be paid off. And then you'll be sitting on five properties at the age of 50 that will have no debt and be paying you a beautiful revenue stream that you'll be able to retire on. And so it's not complex, you know, these sort of things. But we were never taught that sort of thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel that your experience and going through financials has helped you teach your kids about what you not to go, go through what you have gone through and prepare them for the future? Kind of what yeah, you just I, told about your daughter. Yeah, I had terrible investment strategies. Uh, they were bad because I didn't get trained at school, but they were even worse because I worked in the finance industry. Um, you'd think they'd be better, but they weren't. We worked in an area that was very much about hot money, fast trades, you know, um, and so all of the investment we were doing was on two cent mining shares or, you know, back then it was penny dreadfuls because we were trying to find that, you know, that, that one cent share that was going to become $5. And we'd never really had long-term investment strategies because that was the culture in that industry, which is crazy because we should have been much more educated about how to have long-term investment strategies. So I made terrible investment strategies. I lost a lot of money. I made a lot of money, then lost a lot of money. And so because of that life experience, I really want to impart the complete opposite, the antithesis of what I went through with my children and give them a greater sense of long term. I want them to think, what, what does this investment look like in 40 years time? Did working in the financial industry take a bigger effect on your personal life or took you down a certain path personally? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was uh, a journey that, um, for whatever reason, it, it happened that way. And I can see many reasons for it. It, it uh, you know, did lead me into a very dark night of the soul, lots of anxiety and addictions and um, becoming, I guess, someone that um, I wasn't deeply aligned with, but I'd morphed into that. And I can't blame the finance industry. The finance industry is just objectively the finance industry. It was my choices within the industry that um, it kind of led me to that path. I could have made them or I didn't have to make them, but I did. Um, but it was part of a culture that was in the industry that I might not have come across if I wasn't in it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it because of that, I went into a deep, dark night of the soul uh, after about 10 years in the industry. But then because of that, I found meditation and spiritual awareness. And so that was a very big turning point in my life that has led me to this point now where I'm teaching and coaching and running retreats and having films and books published. So um, I guess it's all part of the story and it's all relevant. Going through anxiety and addiction, was it hard for you to kind of be open about it, your struggles to anyone? Or did you know that you had, you only were by yourself and then eventually you found meditation that kind of helped you get to where you wanted to be? Yeah, I was very closed. No one knew about my journey. I was putting on a very tough facade as a very together, um, very much the perfectionist 
which ultimately was a narcissistic sort of indulgence in trying to be perceived in a particular way as this sort of superior, successful, you know, butt-kicking broker. Um, so underneath that veneer was this crumbling wreck of insecurity and fear and, um, and deep loathing and unhappiness. So um, I did manage to um, hide that secret from the world for quite some time. I was very good at it. How did you find meditation? Like, how did that come into your life? Yeah, it's interesting because back then, this was 1996, and meditation wasn't heard of. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't apps, there wasn't Google, there wasn't internet, there was no YouTube. So um, it, it was hard to come across things, really. But if you weren't, wasn't in your life, it wasn't in your life. Mm-hmm. And I was a trading room, you know, broker on a trading room floor and grew up in a country farm and went to an all-boys Catholic school. So it had never been something that I'd come across in the journey of my life. But there I was suffering from what's called agoraphobia. So I was uh, having at that point a bit of a nervous breakdown and I was unable to go to work. I was seeing psychiatrists, put on pharmaceutical drugs um, and spending a lot of time at home. And during that time I was watching TV and there was this documentary on TV about a property developer and it was about his successes and I was just fascinated because he was a businessman and he was making lots of money and I was sort of enamored by that. But this tiny little segment of the story was that he used meditation as a tool for his success and he used the words transcendental meditation and they showed him meditating in his suit, sitting in a chair. And I was like, wow, like it just was this incredible epiphany of seeing something that I didn't have but that I wanted to have this mm-hmm. serenity and this calmness and he's wearing suits. I wear suits. He's sitting in a chair. I sit in chairs. He's successful. I want to be successful. I thought of myself as successful. Um, I was making a lot of money as a broker back then, um, but I was miserable and yet this guy was happy. And so I was very inspired by that. And that's when I, um, you might not even know what this is. I went and picked up the yellow pages phone book. Uh, and that's <laughs> an old phone book we used to use to keep company directories and um, I remember distinctly picking it up, putting it on the coffee table. I still remember the coffee table. This is 26 years ago now. And looking up M for meditation. And I remember ringing all the meditation centers and asking about their programs and their introductory talks and if I can come along. And that's when I uh, came across the meditation technique that really changed my life. What's the biggest thing meditation has taught you about yourself? That I'm not who I think I am. Uh, there's an idea, a perspective, a, a coding, a, a personality that we buy into that is partly genetics driven and partly coded driven through our experiences of life. And so I bought into that and I believed that to be me and I thought that was who I was. But what I've discovered is that that's malleable, it's codable, it's recodable, it's changeable. And so meditation helped me to be the conscious observer of what I perceive myself to be and then start adapting and evolving that part of who I thought I was to be something more of who I want to be come rather than who I am. And so that was a big thing that really helped me uh, have insight into who I am because ultimately when we operate from the ego construct, it's just such narcissism that we kind of, we just love our story. We love our identity. We love our desires and our ambitions And meditation helped me to free myself of that and start to question and start to contemplate a little bit more deeply about who I am and who I want to be. Was this the starting to a new career path for you? Like, I'm not going to be in the financial part anymore. I need to focus on myself and do something that I love to do. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started to realize that there was really only one motivating factor for being in finance, and that was to make money, yeah. which ultimately helped support my family. But it was very, um, you know, single focused. And I realized that life was so much more than that. And I found over time that I wanted to contribute more. I wanted to give back more. I had more purpose and I wanted to find ways to, um, to bring more to the world. And so uh, at first it started off just small things. Like I worked in a soup kitchen for 12 months. I started planting trees in local parks and local streets. And I started doing different things that helped me to the capacity I could give at that particular point in time give as much as I could because I didn't have much to give. But as I started to tap into more and more and discover that I had more and more overflow, then what I found was I wanted to look for bigger and bigger channels to give back to the world. And so it just grew and grew and grew until the point eventually where I left finance and became a meditation teacher. When you're teaching meditation to individuals, what's their first reaction when they're hearing you talk about it? Are they understanding it or when you're really demonstrating and really getting into what's the benefits, they're kind of, okay, I understand it more. Look, we're quite blessed these days because so much of the science and the data is out and people know definitively that meditation is good for you. I don't think anyone's out there saying, oh, don't do that meditation thing. You'll get, you know, you'll go down a a horrible hole there and it'll be terrible in your life. You know, most of the the feedback and the information is that it's going to be adding value to your life in some way. So I don't have to overcome any resistance really to that anymore, which is great. The pathway's been cleared. The one thing that really um, what I commit to is giving the student the experience. So before we start really doing a lot of talking about the meditation, it's really giving them the experience of meditation. And then when we add knowledge and insight on top of the experience, it validates their experience because the experience is quite profound quite quickly with the technique that I teach where they transcend and experience something. It's like, yeah, okay, I get what you're talking about. But if I just start talking about it without giving them the experience, they're like, oh, that sounds like it might be interesting. And there's a disconnect from their personal experience, which will still be a stress response state. Mm -hmm. And then the knowledge, which will be the antithesis of that. So what we do is give them experience first, then the knowledge will support that experience on top of it. Did the pandemic play any effect in your classes or did you do them virtually? And was that a challenge for you or were you able to still continue the same way you've always been doing it? Look, the way I teach meditation, the way it traditionally has been taught was always in person. Uh, and that's uh, teacher to student live in the same locality. Mm-hmm. Um, Pre-pandemic, I'd already made a decision to disrupt that model a little bit, partly because what happened was that tradition was only ever done that way pre-internet and pre our ability to communicate with people in other sides of the world. I'm in Sydney, you're in Missouri, so you know, we can have this conversation. It feels like we're literally in each other's company mm-hmm. and those people listening right now might even feel if they're watching this in video that there's a degree of connectivity that we've never had pre-Zoom and pre-Skype. And so this has really opened the world up. And so what I did was I disrupted the model by putting it into a digital pre, pre-recorded format, which enabled me to access people all over the world 24-7. And I found that there was a great deal of limitation when they started being on podcasts and doing YouTube videos and blogging and people starting to reach out to me saying, hey, you've got to teach me this technique. And I found it very limiting to say, I would love to, but I can't because you need to be here with me. It's like, yeah, but I'm in Missouri. I want to learn from you. It's like, well, I can't teach you because traditionally 
for 5,000 years, this is how it's been done. And so at that point, I had to weigh up, do I uphold the steadfastness of the tradition, which is very beautiful and pure, and I do love that, and I still teach that way. But do I make a compromise so that person somewhere around the world, like Venezuela or Mexico or UK or Canada or Antarctica, can learn this technique in some way, shape or form? And so that's when I created a pre-recorded format. So the, the pandemic didn't really disrupt what I was doing, only for, except for my retreats, uh, which is a big part of what I do, and we couldn't run those. Talk about creating the stillness project. What was the mission behind it and what's been the impact or the um, reaction people have been getting? Hmm. Um, What I found was that creating change in people's lives and the planet was going to be very difficult if we don't shift the consciousness or the mindset of people. Most of us have what's called a coded mindset and these are called vasanas in Sanskrit. It's a tendency of our mind. It's a, it's a pattern of thought. Um, If you grew up in a, Republican family and you grew up in a right-wing Christian family and you grew up in this particular environment, then there's a code that gets embedded into you. And, uh, you know, we kind of operate with that software. And so until we really start, look, we can update that code for sure. We can listen to podcasts and do programs and get coaching and read books and we can adapt and evolve our code for sure. But with meditation, we see this acceleration of that and this freedom from that code where we start to have a greater degree of conscious awareness, not just about our own experience, but life itself. So the stillness project was like, okay, we need more people meditating. I could see some of the world's plights and problems were the fact that we just have a very slow level of evolution, a slow level of adaptive capacity, a slow level of creativity, a slow level of evolution in our own spiritual and, um, and sort of conscious awareness. We're very good at building remote control cars and putting on Mars and building internet and stuff like that. Technologically, we're very, very clever and very advancing very rapidly. But part of that problem, what I could see happening there is that we're developing technological advancements and AI advancements much, much quicker than we're developing our consciousness and our heart-centered awareness, which means that there's going to be a big divide between the level of technology we're building and the consciousness that's creating and owning that technology, which is when technology can actually be used for ways that might not be best served for humanity. And so the stillness project was like, we need to get a billion people meditating in quickly. That's what it became a a mission and a vision to, to get a billion people meditating, or at least be aware of meditation. So everything that I do now, it's not quantifiable. I'm not measuring it. I don't want to get involved in numbers because then it becomes egoic, but it's just an ongoing standing mission that I've got podcast interviews, retreats, corporate trainings, uh, weekend workshops, online programs. It's all part of that. Was there no one out there doing what you're doing? And this was like a great way to kind of get meditation out there and to people that maybe have never experienced it before. Yeah, certainly was, was the case with the, the, um, platforms of Vedic meditation or transcendental meditation. It still hasn't been done this this way. Uh, it's still one of the only platforms that's doing it in that way. Um, but what really came along and supercharged things was calm and headspace, you know, these apps, insight timer, um, you know, there's so many big apps that just kind of leapt forward with lots of funding, you know, became billion dollar companies and really sort of were spearheading this huge movement to bringing meditation into the hands and the households of the world through their, um, development of these apps, which was really exciting and kudos to them. They've done a great job of making this a lot more mainstream. I think from a person who doesn't really experience it much, but I've done meditation before because it's helped me through injuries and it's helped me through like stressful times. 
but it's just nice and relaxing. It's kind of like you see all the videos. I mean, there's even here in the United States, there's a commercial where it's like an app that's specifically for that. And they kind of say, don't think about something for 15 seconds. And it's like, just, it's rewarding in a way. And I think a lot of people definitely need to try it because it might change how they feel or how they think in a way. What's the biggest thing for someone that's new that you would tell them when they're getting into it? There's many different ways to meditate. So firstly, a lot of people get frustrated or give up when they're trying to close their eyes and empty their mind. Okay. So that's going to be a very arduous process to find a way to meditate. Meditation is a process. It's not a goal. A lot of people think they need to get into a meditative state to be the goal. Meditation is an ongoing process and there's different processes, visualizations, uh, um, checking the chakras and clearing the chakras or focusing on your third eye or focusing on the breath. Um, What I recommend and what I've been using for many, many years now is uh, the mantra-based transcending styles of meditation where you get a particular mantra or sound and that mantra makes it a very effortless and easy process. There's um, a lot of resistance in the mind to being still. The mind doesn't really want to be still. The mind doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be empty. The mind doesn't want to not think. So what we want to do is we want to almost trick the mind or inspire the mind to get into these quieter states and the way we do that ultimately the technique i teach is using a mantra which is a mind vehicle to take the mind away from its charm and pleasure of seeking in the outside world and to find the subtlety and the blissfulness of the inner world and so um, for me if you can find a technique that ideally works well for you that feels compelling and charming that isn't uncomfortable and something that you you feel that you want to integrate in your day for me what i found was those with those transcending meditations then that would be a good way to start ideally using a um, learning from a teacher someone that's qualified in the yard of teaching meditation um, would be the best and foremost um starting point early in the interview you talked about going through anxiety addiction depression where are you at today? Do you feel that the career path you're taking, the things that you're doing has helped you not go through those challenges that you faced when you were younger? Yeah, you know, what, what happens when we start doing this work is that we find we don't arrive at perfection and enlightenment straight away. It's an ongoing process. It's not like there's a light switch that's either on or off. So it's mm-hmm. either dark or it's light. It's like there's a dimmer switch and that dimmer switch can be ramped up and it can be turned down and it can have infinite shades of lightness as well. And so we have this um, ongoing increasing of more light and less dark. And so that's what it's really like for me is there's just simply more light and less dark, but there's still some dark and there's lots of light. Whereas before there used to be lots of dark and a little bit of light. And so um, what I find is that there's greater sovereignty and empowerment over my vehicle. That's the physical, mental and emotional body from consciousness itself. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. I still have my own things that I grapple mm-hmm. with and still have my own challenges and still um, am on this journey in my own personal development. I'm a teacher and a student always at the same time, but definitely have noticed that I'm simply becoming over time and there's plenty more to go, but I'm simply becoming a better person. What made you want to be an author and write? What kind of was that mission for you? I loved writing when I was at school. I, I did ancient history, three in ancient history, modern history, or three in modern history. I, that means in Australia, more advanced 
um, mm-hmm. syllabus or curriculum of that particular one and, um, and English as well. So they involved a lot of writing, a lot of essay writing in the histories and in the English. So um, I really enjoyed putting pen to paper back then. And so um, as I started to tap into this wisdom and knowledge and started to do a lot of my own studies and research, I wanted to share that with the world. So writing was going to be a natural expression for me out of a few other expressions. So yeah, that was just one of the modalities that I found that I enjoyed sharing my knowledge and wisdom through. Um, If someone asked me to write a book today, I'd probably say no (laughs) after having done it a few times. It's quite a process, uh, particularly getting to, it's one thing, you know, writing the first draft, but getting the edits done and the constant backwards and forwards with your publisher and your editor, it's uh, it's, uh, quite a logistical process that um, um, I don't want to put anyone off it, but it was certainly uh, a long two years spell of getting our last book out there. Do you feel that, you mentioned that you would never, you wouldn't write again, but if a, the right topic, the right moment, you had that opportunity to do it again, would you? Um, maybe if I'm retired, I just don't, you know, these <laughs> days what I've really enjoyed doing is mentoring and coaching. And that's where I'm like this in person and sharing that wisdom through the use of words. Um, and I love teaching running retreats. So I find it's a better use of my time. It's certainly more impacting. A book um, takes a lot of my time to put that together. I've got a few books in me. Um, I've got one that I like to write on how to live younger and grow um, uh, healthier as uh, an over 50-year-old person, so something for sort of anti-aging. But um, a lot of that's just self-help sort of stuff that I could bundle up. But uh, it's just um, something that maybe down the track I might end up writing something if I've got ample of time not doing anything, which would be very rare. When you're not working, what do you like to do? What does Tom enjoy? Yeah, I love um, I love time off. Uh, I love <laughs> going to yoga classes. I love meditating. I love hanging out with my family. Um, I've got two beautiful children, a wife and a dog. So uh, spending as much time with them as possible. I love hanging out with my friends. And just um, I go to uh, the beach a lot. I spend a lot of time in nature. I read. I love going to the movies and um, my wife and I love watching uh, sort of lots of long TV series. You know, we're always looking for a good TV series. Um, I'm really into TV and film and uh, look for quality content. So, yeah, these are sort of things that I, I kind of have quite a balanced life, I must admit, and put time aside for Tom a lot. I think when you talked about earlier about getting out in nature, it's kind of stayed with you throughout all these years because all the things you were mentioning is like all things you can do outdoors and just mm. enjoy. And I think not living in Australia for myself. I think when we see like the images, the videos, the shows and just of Australia, it's just, it's breathtaking. Like I said, I need to go there one day. I need to travel just to go there. Cause there, it's just, it's so nice. And everyone that I've spoken to is just so welcoming. I think it's like, we just all have to experience that. Yeah, I'm feeling very grateful and incredibly blessed to have been brought up here. I'm so always grateful to my mum and dad from leaving England and coming to Australia. <laughs> you know, I, we grew up on beaches and forests and uh, it's everywhere you go. And it's just even I'm in a city, one of the biggest cities in Australia, and it's I'm at the moment looking out over the ocean. Um, you know, this morning I was swimming in the ocean and, um, you know, surrounded by parks and wildlife. And, um, you know, my mum and dad's farms are now from here. and We've got kangaroos and possums and all sorts of things so it's just it's just normalized to being around but also being blessed to be around so much beauty 
I'm jealous. You just said you're looking out a window and seeing the other. I'm like, I'm jealous. I'm like, I need to change where I live. I need to live on a beach or something. I mean, that just seems like the life right there. And then you mentioned kangaroos. I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah, it's all around us. We're very blessed. But yeah, I can't imagine there's a lot of ocean uh, frontage at Missouri, right? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I can look out. I mean, it's raining right now. So there's the water right there just coming <laughs> from the sky. <laughs> Is there anything you would change throughout your journey or do you feel that each stage you went through was a growing experience, a learning experience, and it got you to where you are today? You know, I've got two responses to that. One is what I'm supposed to say as a spiritual teacher and a coach is that everything's perfect and everything is as it should and it's all happened for your, you know, divinely orchestrated there's another response and that's from me, Tom, the personality. And there's definitely things that I wish I hadn't done things Mm -hmm. uh, financially that I wish I hadn't done career wise. I wish I hadn't done personally decisions that I've made that have hurt people. And I definitely, I do regret them. People say you shouldn't regret, but I know it's like, I do regret that. I wish that that didn't, that wasn't an experience in my life. And and I I can see that it has helped me, but um, I still, would rather I could have learned that lesson without having to go through that. Maybe I had to go through that, but there's um, certainly changes that I, I, I've made. Uh, certainly some terrible business decisions and investments <laughs> that I've made that are like, why were you thinking that? So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? At the moment, I'm just launching a teacher training program, which I'm really excited by. So bringing more meditation teachers into the world. So I'll be running that on an annual basis from now on every year, putting through a, um, a, a program to bring teachers into the world. And every year, uh, I'm also launching my Zen Academy, which is a conscious leadership program. So less meditation teacher training based and more for conscious leadership. So those will be two of my flagships that I'll be running every year, two group coaching programs. And then on top of that, um, I'm really excited about traveling the world running retreats. So we've got Greece, Bali. Uh, I want to look at exploring in the USA, um, Dubai, and possibly the Philippines as retreats that I'll be running on a more regular basis. And then um, I'm looking to get myself a nice farm and uh, settle down growing vegetables and have an orchard and uh, sitting on my porch and uh, looking across the plains. When you're picking a location for a retreat, what are you looking for? What What's the kind of the bullet points they have to hit? Yeah, definitely there is some qualifications that we, we're looking for. I usually do some reconnaissance beforehand to see that it does um, fit within those parameters. Um, usually we're looking for something that's firstly quite elevated in physical height. So we don't want anything that's sort of low down in valleys. We want things that are kind of usually a bit higher up. There's a reason for that that goes back into sort of spiritual sort of teachings um you'll see most monasteries were in sort of elevated places mm-hmm. if you think about dungeons and dragons they're normally down in dark sort of lower levels yeah. um so energetically something that's fairly high um we're looking for something that doesn't have any um busyness like road traffic um airplane traffic that's kind of got some freedom from that type of consistent noise it needs to have a, a, a quietness for the nervous system and and sensory sort of um receptivity uh, we're looking for venues that there's usually um, when we start meditating, we get a little bit more sensitive to frequencies of locations. So let's just say um, you're in Fifth Avenue, New York. Um, you might notice there's a very different vibration there in your in your nervous system, in your sensitivity 
to say being in Joshua Tree. Um, you know, there's there, and you might find Mount Shasta has a different vibration to, I don't know, say somewhere like Syria or something. I'm not sure. I'm just pulling places out there. Every place has a different sort of frequency. We've got some very strong spiritual, um, very feminine uh, sort of energies uh, in places here in Australia, a place called Byron Bay. And that the location itself had a very soft feminine healing energy um, for thousands of years. And the Aboriginal traditional landowners would go there for giving birth and for healing. And so different areas around the world have got these sort of very soft feminine healing energies to them. And other areas have got very yang sort of more masculine sort of energies. And so like places like New York has got a very masculine energy. It's mm-hmm. very yang and go get things and it's objective and it's, very structured and linear. Whereas if you look at sort of the softer energies like Bali, it's a very feminine energy. It's a very soft energy. And it's very different. If you can go to Bali, then you next you go across to another island like Java, very, very different energy, completely different islands. And so we're looking for the energy of the location. Maui, we had a retreat up in Pai, Maui. And I found the energy there was so similar to the energy of Byron and Bali. It's very soft and ocean winds and very soothing and nourishing and healing and so um you wouldn't want to be running a retreat you could but ideally you wouldn't want to be running it downtown new york uh in the, not to pick on new york but it's a very busy frenetic energy there um whereas uh what you're looking for is something a bit softer and calmer the final question i'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Mm, Wow. That's such a good question. I would highly suggest making meditation a big part of your day. When we meditate, when we calm our mind, we access a field of infinite creative possibility. Everything that was ever designed and created lay in that field of infinite possibility. So there's a field of formlessness that has all potential that exists within it. So the analogy I like to use is that My phone has a hardware, which is its physical casing, which is what our physical body is. It has a software, which is the iOS operating system. Mm -hmm. And so that is a code within the phone to operate in a particular way. Now we can update the code and we get these updates every now and then, but that's the limits of the phone inside the phone. And that's our brain. But what we know is that that phone exists in a field of infinite intelligence. Now, wherever that phone goes, whether it's Bali or Antarctica or Vancouver, the intelligence is still around the phone and the phone's in that field of intelligence and that's the internet, right? The internet's not yep. in the phone, the phone's in the internet. And so that's the way we live our life is that all possibility lies in the ether, it's all around us. And when we meditate, we start accessing that field of infinite creativity and possibility, which means we start to become more and more of a conduit for that, which means that we start to break out from the limits of our code from the constraints of our ego structure and we start to realize so much potential and for me because i've been meditating and doing this for so long we get these downloads that just come from the ether let's make a film let's write a book let's create a coaching program oh my goodness there's so many ideas i almost have to slow down and pick and choose otherwise i'll just do, do, do too many because you find that the there's no limit to what you can create and what you can do Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. That's great to be here. Thanks for your time and thanks for listening, everyone. It's great to share space with you. 
Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.